In this episode of the Runum Podcast, you're going to hear some insights and advice about setting up a good farm lease and then managing the relationship with your landlords, featuring presentations from two different farmers who spoke about the subject for separate webinars this year. Be warned though, listeners, one of them is me, but the other one is this guy. Well, you can guess what happened. We swung the gate open and that cow jumped right out. So she was at large for two weeks, like totally stressing, no insurance. And she, we found her on the Trans-Canada Highway. And luckily, a guy got her corralled in his barn, and we got her home and shot her and ate her. And she tasted fine. She was very fat. That's Blake Hall from Prairie Gold Pastured Meats. He's been on the show before. He's a pretty interesting guy. And this is the Ruminant Podcast. Let's go. This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant is a podcast and blog for gardeners and farmers, and for people who care about how their food is produced. At theruminant.ca, you'll find show notes for each episode, as well as essays, book reviews, and blog posts featuring cool stuff people are doing on their farms. You'll find it all at theruminant.ca. Okay, time for the show. Hey folks, it's Jordan. All right, so I told you about a month ago that I was going to take a week off from the podcast, and now it's been a month or more than a month, and well, yeah, farming happened. It's been real busy. I'm setting up a new lease uh, down the valley or up the valley for me, and it's been taking a lot of my free time, so it's been real hard to get episodes out. I apologize to those who've been wondering what the heck's going on, but of course, if you've been listening long enough, you know that this is pretty uh, normal for me this time of year. Anyway, there'll be more content coming. I'm not sure if I'm going to get stuff out every week from here on in, but I am going to shoot to have something for you next week, so cross your fingers. All right, so earlier this year, an organization called FarmStart, and specifically uh, an employee with FarmStart called Margaret Graves, produced a series of land access webinars. I think they had four, and each speaker spoke about their experience uh, accessing land uh, via, well, various innovative strategies, two of which were uh, more traditional leases. Uh, and I gave one of those presentations. So did Blake Hall of Prairie Gold Pastured Meats. He's been on the show before, and uh, we both talked about our experiences leasing land and shared our insights. And for today's episode of the podcast, I have taken clips or snippets from Blake's presentation and mixed them together with snippets from my presentation uh, and wound them together in a way that I hope uh, is, is easy to consume and a little more appropriate for uh, a podcast form. So I won't say too much more. Uh, this, this could be useful for anyone who's considering leasing land, who is struggling on their current lease to manage their relationships with their landlords, or, or, or for people who might consider leasing out their farmland uh, to, to new or young or just other farmers. Now, in Blake's presentation, he actually references some documents that he shared with the webinar participants. And uh, I know Blake's okay with me sharing those with all of you. So if you check out the show notes for this episode at theruminant.ca, you will find uh, these, these template doc documents that, that Blake uses on his farm with his landlords. And who knows, maybe they can, they can help you out as well. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, after these uh, these webinar clips, you're going to hear a quick conversation with Amy Kremen, co-editor of the Canadian Organic Grower magazine. She talks about what's in her new issue. There's some pretty cool stuff in there. So uh, you can check that out at the end of this episode. And I hope you enjoy it. And I'll talk to you later. Peace out. So we run a herd share program, as you can see, on rented land. Uh, our herd share program, it's how we direct market all of our products and it's really the way that we were able to kickstart and cash flow 
and it's pretty much the same story with every other first generation uh, direct marketer out there. Uh, and it's been for sure the only way that we could get into livestock production without a loan. So we run Prairie Gold Pastured Meats. We started it in 2010. And so we do grass-finished beef. We do pastured pork. That pig is cute. We do some sheep. We have some ewes and lamb on grass in June. And we also have 300 laying hens, which is the small flock exemption in Alberta. So we're on a we're on a we're on a farm lease in Peachland, British Columbia, in the Okanagan Valley. We started farming here in 2011. We moved on January 1st of 2011, and then our first season of growing here was was uh, the spring of that year. So that our, our our lease here has actually grown a bit in those five years. We've expanded as as we went along. And so just to give you a sense, we are a, this is a certified organic farm here, and I grow market veggies. Uh, over time, I've tended to focus more and more on, on sales to restaurants, um, but I've kind of done a little bit of everything. I still do a tiny, tiny bit of sale into um, grocery stores and other retail outlets. Uh, I, 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 I have had a CSA um, all the way along. It's been larger than it, than it is now. Right now, it's at about 35 families. I've had it as high as about 60 families. Uh, and I've also done farmer's markets. Okay. I grew up in town. Uh, my grandpa was the last generation on the farm. His dad died when he was 14. The tractor broke down, and he took it all apart, and he couldn't get it back together again. And so he went and joined a seismic crew. Or so the story goes. But anyway, that's the last time there was a, a haul farming in my family. From 2006 until 2009, I knew I had the bug, and I was just, like, working on farms. Uh, I was working in town. I was doing a carpentry apprenticeship, but on the weekends I was working on farms, going to the farmer's market, kind of becoming a foodie, going to conferences, holistic management, reading all kinds of publications, just trying to learn about agriculture. And by the time I finished my carpentry ticket in 2009, I felt like I had a pretty good theoretical knowledge, but very little of the hands-on skill that comes with growing up on the farm. So I spent a year on the road working at different farms and ranches across Canada and just learning, you know, how to tie fencing knots, how not to roll up an electric fence reel and get it all tangled, how to move cattle in a low-stress manner, what a healthy pasture looks like, what an unhealthy pasture looks like, how to pull a calf, all kinds of stuff. It was all good experience. And by the end of that, in the spring of 2010, I finally felt like I had the confidence to go out on my own. Uh, and I had a little bit of money, and I went and I bought my first herd of cattle. I split it with a friend in the Algoma District in northern Ontario. I'm originally from Red Deer, but I spent a shift in uh, Ontario. And so once I bought those cattle, I was kind of starting my way down to the beg, borrow, and steal land access plan because as soon as the check cleared and the cattle were mine, I basically became the closest thing to a nomadic herdsman in the 21st century as you can be. I owned nothing more than cattle. And so it was just flexing that social capital, working on farms so that I, my cattle can graze and this and that. 
And along the way, there were certainly some less hard lessons in communication. But persistence and politeness pay off because eventually, if you're a tenant farmer, it can be very tiresome, exhausting, and expensive. And pays off when you can find yourself in a stable land tenureship arrangement, which I'm pleased to report we are finally in. Joe and Jess have been farming on this property as owners for about 30 years or even more now. Um, never super, super commercial. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think the, the, the most they were ever grossing in revenues was $30,000. Um, but, but it was still important to them, uh, both, both in terms of meaning, just, just, it was meaningful to be farming, but, um, but they are also just lifelong farmers and very passionate farmers. And, uh, by the time we got there, their revenues were even lower. Jess had already pulled out of the farm. She was barely doing any farming. Joe was also interested in, in semi-retirement. So, they 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 liked the idea. We we figured we could give them the same level of stewardship and care for their land. So it seemed kind of win win, and uh, it kind of at that point remained to be seen if that was the case. Anyway, so Tamara Ranch uh, is owned by Tom and Margaret Towers. They're seventy. They were hoping to retire. They're at the in the twilight of their career. Tom, his grandfather homesteaded in a mile down the road, so there's very deep towers roots in our area. And him and his brother farmed together conventionally. They had a feedlot at home. They grew their own crops. They grew their own silage, all their own feed. Uh, and in the early 90s, they kind of, Tom and Margaret could kind of see the writing on the wall that perhaps this get bigger, get out thing wasn't working for them. And so they split the sheet. They split the partnership. It, it it wasn't acrimonious. It was all good. But essentially, this coincided with Tom and Margaret taking holistic management for the first time, and they realized, okay, maybe the answer lies in less machinery, uh, in grazing, and focusing on the cattle and the soil. And so, from the early '90s until now, they have been really ramping up the grazing. So that's when the electric fencing started to get developed. That's when the water system started to get developed. But they started, they've got one son and he lives in Vancouver and has a business out there and a family and it's, you know, with no hard feeling, I said, there's no way I'll come around the farm. Um, and so they're at the twilight of their career. We're in a very fertile black soil region and every farm around us is grainland. And so they knew that if they sold out and moved to town, that the first thing that's going to happen is all the trees you see in this picture are going to get bulldozed. And then the Roundup wagon is going to come trundling down the laneway and all this grass will get sprayed out. And there will be a few bumper crops of canola, but pretty much within five years, their legacy will be undone. And when I say legacy, I mean deeper topsoil, high organic matter, uh, rejuvenation of native species, loss of habitat. And this, you know, for them was a big deal. So they actually started courting my wife and I about coming and taking over the management. So we actually met because I listed some cattle for sale on Kijiji and... That's how I met Tom and Margaret. They came out and 
they were looking at getting a couple of grass cattle that they could sort of step their product quality up with. And they saw what we were doing out on this other rented piece and commuting. And I think that's when the gears started turning. So the circle, well, the circle you see is the first quarter acre that we started with. Uh, so we did a year on that quarter acre. And uh, in exchange, uh, they they gave us very, very affordable rent, just like an incubator farm. And I mean rent for our housing, which was on the farm, but also the land, really affordable. Uh, we started at paying $400 a month for our, for our residents and the land. Um, and then in exchange, we had to be willing to give them a total of 30 hours a week of paid labor. Okay, so not 30 hours each, but 30 hours as a couple we needed to give to their farm operation. Um, so they were paying us at the time 12 bucks an hour. So it was a pretty good deal. Um, we had a quarter acre to start getting our farm business going. Plus we had some paid labor to, uh, to help us out since we weren't going to be making a lot off our farm in the, in the early going. So in that winter of 2012, we started meeting. Uh, we hired Kelly Sidoric, who's a certified holistic management educator and comes from kind of a long line of uh, holistic managers to come down and facilitate a vision planning, goal setting work workshop. So she was with us for a weekend, and that was huge just to put us all on the same page. So she'd send us all off on our own. And we'd all write down, okay, in five years, this is what I see the ranch looking like. And I more or less expected everybody to come back and say the same thing. So it was really eye-opening to see how divergent our visions were. And so this was good to be having these discussions before any type of arrangement had been reached because it allowed us to then take all our divergent visions and craft a holistic goal that melded them all and made us all feel like we had a stake in the project uh, and that it made us feel good. So like I said, this holistic management common language really gave us a starting point for how to communicate about finances, how to communicate about the land management, and it also introduced a language about the people side of things. Everybody understood from the start that we can't ignore all stakeholders, everybody's vision and goals and buy-in. So I, I want to point out that uh, um, when I talk about pros and cons of leasing on a working farm, I'm, that's, that's more or less meant to be contrast contrasted to if you were to lease land from someone who wasn't a farmer. So someone with farm land, but who wasn't farming themselves, whether they live on the land or don't live on the land. So just keep that in mind that that's kind of the, the type of contrast I'm, I'm attempting to establish. I mean, presumably on a lot of farms that are working farms, you're just going to have experienced farmers already set up. And so they're going to be able to help you. And, and let me tell you, three years of apprenticing, I we knew a lot, but we still had a lot to learn. And we benefited greatly from um, from, from Joe and Jess, Joe and Jess's mentorship. And what you end up do, what you end up realizing is you, you just realize what you don't know. You know, like, uh, the, uh, there was a lot about irrigation. I didn't know because the type of irrigation I had dealt with before was, was uh, abnormal, um, compared to most farms. So uh, just on irrigation alone, I learned a lot from, from Joe specifically. Um, um, another, another one that's fantastic. And, and this was, this was just maybe the particular generosity of Joe and Jess is that, um, 
and, and the timing of us being here was that that uh, they, they they gave us access to their own markets because they were especially in year two in year two you know they pulled back and we took over their veggie gardens we inherited for example one grocery store relationship that at its at the peak 10 weeks of the season was $500 a week and at that time that was a huge contract for us um, that we didn't have to establish because it was already done and that that took some trust from Joe and Jess that we wouldn't mess up their reputation um, and that that goes to the next point so so they another potential benefit is that, that the farm already had an established reputation in the community um, it also had organic certification so we kind of walked we had to like learn how to participate in that certification but we kind of walked into that um, and, and this was particularly useful for us that, that, um, Joe and Jess let us assume their farm's name even. So we just called ourselves the same farm name, which meant we could capitalize to the greatest extent on their farm reputation. And, and uh, that was really helpful for us. People already knew the name in the community and, and, and it, it meant that people weren't, they just, a lot of certain customers wouldn't even know the change. And, and that was, again, for new farmers, that was really valuable. Um, like they say, it's cheap. Not every situation is going to be cheap, but, but, um, presumably if part of the arrangement is that you're going to give your labor to the farm, they're going to really value that. Even if they're not paying you a ton for that labor, they will offset it as Joe and Jess did with, um, very, very reasonable access, like to, to maybe housing and certainly farmland. So, uh, when you combine that with the tools and machinery and other infrastructure, it was, it was, um, it just kept things very, very affordable for us as new farmers. Um, this last one I think is so crucial or so, such a potential benefit of, of leasing on a working farm. And that's that, um, your landlords get it. You know, they, they've been there themselves. They know that, that to the extent a farm even can be profitable, which isn't a guaranteed thing. Uh, they know you work really hard for it. So it's not like they're going to sit there and maybe seeing some profitability and then getting like, Oh yeah, like I want some of that. I deserve more rent. They get it. They get you're working hard. They get the challenges, and that that is um, that's worth its weight in gold. So basically, here's what we've come up with. When we first got to Tamara Ranch, we worked on a memorandum of agreement, and so we had a memorandum of agreement, and Steel Pony had a memorandum of agreement with the landowner, and that has kind of evolved because we can see more and more enterprises happening on the ranch with more and more stakeholders. And so what we've come up with this year, and this is a document I sent to Margaret this afternoon, uh, and this we actually got a lawyer to write, it's the Farm Services Agreement. And so it's kind of a generic document that outlines all these things you see on the slide. Uh, if I think we'll have time. I'd like to work through them really quickly. It's pretty generic. It's one size fits all. The farm service agreement uh, can be written for us. It can be written for a market gardener or a chicken farmer or a commercial kitchen or someone who wants to do a folk festival or start a disc golf course. Uh, this would encompass all those different enterprises, and this would be the agreement between the landowner and the tenant. Okay, there are some drawbacks that I want to I want to talk about. Um, and, uh, I want to say that they became, they have become more prominent with each year we're here, which I, I, I makes sense if you think about it. Um, but I already mentioned the first one, um, part of the deal, part of the, part of the price of admission to this situation was that we, we needed to provide some labor. And even once we renegotiated and reduced the labor down to 10 hours, I got to tell you, if you start a farm business, if you haven't already, um, 
you you get it's 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 your passion it's what you really want to do and so even at 10 to 15 hours a week which is kind of what we provide through the main season um those are 10 to 15 hours i'd much rather be on my own business improving my own business making my own business thrive but that you know it's part of it's part of i couldn't i wouldn't have i wouldn't have been able to do what i've done here without that that part of the deal another for us my landlords are farmers and they live here on the property where i farm and and i work for them and what it means is that um even though i couldn't imagine more flexible understanding landlords they still have opinions and they're they they just every single anytime they're out on the farm they're gonna see things that i've done and they may have opinions and they may want to share them and so vanessa and i both at, at times really feel like in a fishbowl and that's not always fun it's not it's not always you know i sometimes i just like sometimes you don't want to have to walk around the farm knowing that if the landlords see you they're probably going to want to talk to you sometimes you don't want to deal with that but it's it's part of the reality of this type of arrangement uh occasionally i'm locked on the farm uh there are two horses here on the farm that means twice a day the horses need to be tended to um this is much less of an issue if um if there are no animals but even on a on a purely plant-based farm um you know, we, another, another benefit, another thing that sweetens the deal for the landlords is if you, by being here, can let them get away for extended periods of time. Um, and that's a huge benefit to, to a farm owner because many farm owners who don't have that, they're stuck on the farm more than they want to be. But, um, that's just part of the give and take. I, I, I don't find it that bad, but, but it's another thing to think about is that, um, you know, you, you may have some obligations that keep you around the farm at times a day or times a year that you'd really rather not be there or not have to be there. And uh, listen, if you farm where your landlords live and they're farmers or not, but if, if where you're farming is on a lease where the landlords live, um, and sorry, I should say, particularly if there is more farming going on on the same property and they're your bosses, let me tell you, there's going to be constant communication. And I mean, for, for the busiest two or three months in the summer, some days I'm on the phone eight times with them during the day. Just they're checking they, and, and it, it, it can be very difficult because sometimes I don't want to answer that phone, but I answer the phone because it's just part of it's part of the reality of farming in a context like this. But um, that is it is a drawback. There's just some days I don't I don't I don't want to deal with eight separate calls. And we've we've tried to like improve that and say, hey, can you write down your stuff so that it's only twice a day? But it, it, that's not very practical in practice. So it's sometimes eight calls a day. Um, and that's that's another slight drawback. By now, we were far enough in our down our path to realize that this communication piece is the piece that's going to make or break an arrangement. All the good intention in the world, all the money in the world can make, won't make a, a partnership succeed. And we were lucky to have sort of the common framework of holistic management to work with. We build in communication, so we have kind of set things. Like every Monday morning, I go for coffee with Tom and Margaret. It doesn't seem like much, but in, during the growing season, that's when I'm keeping them up to date with what's happening on the ranch. Uh, what the plan is for the upcoming week, when I might need Tom's help. Uh, he still wants to be involved. He let, he's enjoying a semi-retired agrarian lifestyle. He loves getting on his horse and working cattle. He's an awesome stockman. Like, we work cattle well together. So that's a plus. But And then we might talk about any upcoming issues 
And in the winter, this is when we might just be brainstorming for this upcoming season. And then once a month, the whole project gets together. So us, and Field to Fork, and Steel Pony uh, with Tamara Ranch. And we kind of have a whole farm meeting. And so this is where we might plan for a field day or collaborating on the grazing in the market garden or any other way that we can do a whole farm project. Check in regularly. I referenced this earlier. Uh, I, I, I wasn't just, I, I really mean it that when I find myself having conversations in my head, it's time to phone Joe and Jess and say, hey, can we meet for coffee tomorrow and have a check-in? Um, check-ins have, have diffused so many potential problems on the farm. Uh, and often we check in and what do we find out? One or more, both parties has been making assumptions that aren't even true. And that's another reason to not, to not make assumptions is because often your assumptions are misplaced. Often your assumptions get wrapped up in your own biased perspective or your own, uh, ego. And so check-ins, man, like in the early going, have them, have them too much. The, the worst part of, uh, having too many check-ins is you drink too much coffee and uh, you develop like a caffeine problem, but uh, that's not so bad. You, 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 another thing I'm gonna mention a little bit is you really need to be um, intellectually honest with yourself. Um, you know, you, you, you need to be able to recognize things like, am I a bad communicator? And if you know you are, and you're probably not gonna improve that much, uh, this is not the situation for you. The situation for you is probably to find a piece of land where the landlords don't live there and you're, you, 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 you aren't as, you're not in that fishbowl, I suppose. Uh, and then a note on housing. Like I said, we live on the ranch, and I could see how in some arrangements you'd want to build that into your rental agreement. We rent the house uh, and the yard site, but we keep that whole arrangement separate from our scope of work and our farm services agreement. We basically live here as if we were just tenants who drove to work every day in town. Uh, and then in, we've got another whole rental agreement, but it's pretty similar to any standard housing rental lease that you would sign with, you know, how you use your yard. And if I guess my only thing with this housing thing is if you want to live on the farm, regardless of if you're farming or not, then I'd say maybe have a separate arrangement for the housing from your farming enterprise. But if you're the only reason you're there is because of your farming enterprises, then I don't think there's anything wrong with building that into your farm service agreement. You know, under the term section, you can say uh, I, a five-year automatic renewing lease that includes the, the house on whatever piece of the land. Be impeccable with your word. Be honest. That one's pretty straightforward. One thing that comes up a lot in these arrangements is like you screw up. You screw up. You 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 just you 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 know you break something. If you break something, I've broken lots of things of Joe and Jess's. Tell them. Don't hide it. You know that that impulse. The immediate impulse is like I can hide this. They don't need. I can bury this freaking tool in the soil, and no one will ever know the better. Don't do that. Just. You go, you have to be honest with your landlords, and it it, it may it hurts in the in the in the telling of of a screw up, but it it really helps in the long run. Okay, just a quick story about the importance of insurance. Very first summer, very first time taking a cow to the butcher shop because she was a little bit hairy. I hired my neighbor with a horse trailer. 
which didn't have a slide gate, it had a swing gate. So when we backed up to the butcher shop, you have to stop like eight feet away, swing the gate open, and then back up the rest of the way. Well, you can guess what happened. We swung the gate open, and that cow jumped right out. So she was at large for two weeks, like totally stressing. No insurance. And she, we found her on the Trans-Canada Highway. And luckily, a guy got her corralled in his barn, and we got her home and shot her and ate her. And she tasted fine. She was very fat. But I really feel like we dodged a bullet there. If someone, if something had happened on that highway with the cow and I'd been on the hook, whew, that would have really sucked, as I'm sure you can all imagine. Or direct marketers often have field days or invite their customers out. I would just hate for something to happen. It also really allowed me to sleep comfortably when I was living in town, renting land a half hour away, because some of that fence was pretty rough, and I just... You never know what can happen if there's a storm and they bust through the corner and they're all out on the road and it just is like so much peace of mind. Don't take things personally. Um, you're going to run into tension on the farm um, because you're sharing resources, but you're also, in our case, we're employees. Um, and it is very, very easy to take things personally, to take criticism personally. And it's not even like it's criticism. As our employers, Joe and Jess have to pass on information. Like, this needs to be done. This hasn't been done yet, whatever. It is, I mean, anyone who's been an employee knows it is very easy to take that kind of those comments and, like, take them personally. The key is to recognize when you're taking things personally and then tell yourself, I am taking this personally. I'm letting my ego get in the way. Um, so, I mean, it just as simple as, like, Joe, Joe needing to point out, like, oh, we're getting a little behind with weed whacking in the orchard. Um, that can, I'm just a neurotic guy and that can just set me off into like walking around, stumbling around the farm, talking to my, or not talking to myself, talking to Joe in my head. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't realize I've been over here. I've been way back. I look, man, I'm, I'm overworked right now. It's, it's April. It's the busiest time of year. The grass is growing like crazy. I can't, God, man, that's just so unfair. But he's not making it about me. He's just, he's just saying a fact. He's not saying you're not doing the weed whacking properly. He's saying the weeds need to be whacked. And I just wanted to, I noticed it. So just so you know, really, really important because you take things personally and then egos get involved and you get into fights and whatever. Um, we're really good at that on this farm. I'm like I say, I'm not good always at avoiding it completely, but I'm good at rec I'm intellectually honest about it. I, I recognize it when it's happening. Um, and, I, and as an aside, when you start to notice yourself in these relationships, having conversations with your landlord in your head when you're in the shower or when you're walking around the farm, that's, that's a really good indicator. It's time for a check-in. One of the questions I had Blake was, um, did you, have you ever wished for a lease longer than five years or does the kind of rolling nature of the lease kind of take care of that for you? Yeah, I, uh, would love a lifetime lease at Tamara Ranch, but these types of things are earned, and it's a lot to jump into something like that right off the bat. I don't know of any examples like that where you can just meet somebody and hit it off and them give you a lifetime lease to the place. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. Um, but it, landowners, it, like renting in a way, there's power to the renter too. The tenant has sway in the relationship. And so as much as the landowner is feeling out the tenant, 
the tenant also feels out the landowner. If they feel like they're going to, the landowner doesn't have their interest in mind or whatever, uh, it's nice to have a short term at the start, maybe. I can see for market gardeners that that's, that's a bit of a tough deal. Like, if you're breaking virgin land and trying to get your weed pressure under control, like, especially in an organic system, you need at least that five-year lease right off the bat. Uh, but the nature of our current arrangement, I'm quite satisfied with. Uh, if a automatic five-year lease that's self-renewing is great. Uh, yeah. And currently, we're in the process of buying our house and then the acreage right around it. That is affordable, not all the farmland. And so I think... If we own a little piece of Tamara Ranch, then that'll even help uh, galvanize our tenancy into, you know, indefinitely. Uh, one thing I haven't talked about is the next generation. Of the, our landowners are 70, and we have been developing a good relationship with their son because inevitably the farm will end up in his name, and we've brought him in and really get him to understand the nature of the Tamara Ranch project what we bring to the management of the place as tenants and why it's in his best interest to uh, keep us around as well. And so that relationship will continue. And it's kind of fun because his son and our son, are they're exactly one year apart. And so it's kind of neat to see them play together and to think, you know, maybe in 50 years they'll be having beer together and, you know, talking about the management of the ranch. Put as much as you can in writing. Um, I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, but like, don't rely on good faith and good nature and all the rest. Writing never hurts. It takes a little bit of time and it, 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 it just matches up expectations and it provides a reference when you start to have disagreements. Um, it doesn't need to be, a, in, I don't mean in every single case, it's something a lawyer is looking at. It's just, a, it can sometimes be a piece of paper that outlines, you know, expectations you both look, everyone looks at it, sign off on it. It'll avoid all kinds of problems. Uh, this is just to echo, I guess, what Margaret said about getting it in writing. I totally agree with that. I've had the handshake deals in the past, and it, they're fine. It's all good to trust your neighbor and trust your partner. But getting it in writing, in my opinion, is more about process than the final document. Whenever we get something in writing, we don't, our main goal is to put it in a drawer and never to have to pull it out again. But going through and writing it, it has the dialogue that needs to happen while everybody's feeling good about things. So filling in all your contingencies and escape clauses and rate of pay. And I'll, I'll go into greater detail, like I said, but it really is critical. And there's ways of doing it where you're not imposing yourself on a new relationship or on new landowners. Like I understand if you're coming to a new farm and like I'm this enthusiastic young farmer with all this initiative and I can't wait to transform your farm. Like that can be intimidating for the older generation, especially if you're coming waving you know, this big paper document. But there are ways of having that dialogue and 
I don't know if that makes sense. Don't make assumptions. It's it's a quick way to create resentment and tension and all the rest. Uh, my my example I thought of is a really simple one, but it's actually in its simplicity, it, it illustrates just how important it is. Um, it's probably obvious to everyone that you shouldn't make assumptions like, oh, my friend needs a tractor down the road. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lend out Joe's tractor without asking him. Okay, that's an idiot assumption to make on my part. Um, not, most people wouldn't do that. If you're, gonna, if, you're, if you're prone to making those kind of assumptions, yeah, this is not a good situation for you. But it's even the little ones. Because remember, the, you're not, by, by being on a lease on a working farm with your landlords living there, you're not, you're not just tenant, you're not just like, I should have said this earlier. The, the really interesting thing is you're not just landlord and tenant. You're neighbors. You're legitimate neighbors. You're friends. Um, you, it's a mentor-protege relationship. Like, it's a very complex relationship. And so there's all these ways that your assumptions can contribute to degrading those relationships. And so the really easy example is, like, Vanessa was doing her academic program in Vancouver for off and on over the years. And uh, she was living in a house in Vancouver with a fireplace. And her, she and her roommates were really excited about the fireplace. And we have tons of firewood on the farm. Um, and they needed some firewood. And the best firewood we have on the farm is, is some, was some really well-cured fir. And so I literally figured, oh, I'm going to grab two, two pieces of fir uh, to take down to the coast and chop into a bunch of kindling. Because fir just is great kindling. Um, and then I, that was a kind of assumption I thought it was safe to make. And then I checked in with Joe just because I bumped into him. I'm like, Oh, Joe, I took a couple of pieces. It was Joe's fur. And there, you know, there was, there was, um, there were, he probably had 60 pieces of fur ready to go nice and cured. Um, and I, I saw him bristle and I realized like he's, he, he's a very generous man and he was, he probably instantly would have said yes, but he just didn't like that. I just assumed I could take his fur wood. Um, and th those, those little micro examples, that's what you you have to really think about when you're trying to work along, like just live, uh, happily on a farm together. So very, very important. So I say persistence because if you're trying to eke out a living as a first generation farmer in Canada these days, you got to be persistent, whether it's working off farm full time and then working on farm full time just to work towards that goal or sacrificing quality of life uh, so that you can be on farm. Anyway, I'm sure you all have your uh, own testimonials. And then just trying to be positive and polite and, like, help your neighbor out. I sort of felt like whenever I moved to a new neighborhood, I just flopped myself on the neighborhood. And it wasn't because I'm a super outgoing extrovert, but it's because I, like, legitimately needed the help of my neighbors um, and so you just be polite when you're asking for things and try to help out when you can reciprocate it's kind of self-evident stuff nothing that your parents didn't teach you I'm sure um, do what you say you're gonna do it's kind of an extension of be honest uh, it goes a long way in these relationships uh, building up trust and credibility happens really quick if you just follow through on what you say don't be flaky I had a question from, and it was about finding the right landowner who does understand your vision. Um, you know, obviously, having heard you speak, it, this couldn't have been built alongside a landowner who had a different uh, ethic. But have you worked with landowners who are not as well aligned? And, and like, could you, would that ever, ever have worked in this sense? 
Yeah, I have worked with landowners who aren't, that honestly just don't care at all. They're just happy to have their land rented out to get paid. In our case, it worked okay because we pretty much had freedom of the place. They weren't, they didn't care about us. They didn't really care what we did. Um, they didn't want us to have pigs or anything. They were just, they said, no, this is just for cattle. Uh, to build something long-term like this, I think would have been a challenge. I did get a three-year lease out of them. So perhaps, you know, they well, they wanted me to stay there. But I tell you, having that common vision really fleshes out the whole thing. If you can talk that same language with your landowner, it really gives you kind of that sense of security, which there's enough stress in farming. And tenant farmer, being a surf sucks. <laughs> tenant farmers have kind of had a bad rap for a long time. And so if you can have that sense of security, I think that's worth a lot. Uh, choose your battles. Learn to let things go. And it's hard to do. but you, you over And you don't have to be awesome at it right away. But you really need to recognize, like, you can't get your way in every regard you have to go buy your own piece of land if that's what you want and joe and jess can't have their way if they if they want to have us here to provide labor to them and so you just need to re, you need to learn and finesse when a certain issue is worth bringing it up and when you just have to accept like i don't need to to raise this one i don't i don't need to sit down with joe and jess and tell them that eight calls a day is too much overall I'd rather save the discussion for something that's more important to me. I can handle eight calls a day, even though I would love if it was down to four. Okay. Grass is great. Thank you, everybody. I hope that was informative. Uh, for sure, look at the documents that Margaret will be sending you, or if you've downloaded them already. This is probably the formula we're going to work with for the foreseeable future. All right, so that concludes that segment on leasing land. If you liked what you heard, uh, you can hear the full presentations that Blake and I each gave separately over at farmstart.ca. Farmstart was the organization that produced a series of webinars on helping farmers gain access to land in, in different ways. There are more webinars in the series. So if you head to farmstart.ca and look for their webinars, you can find those ones as well as all kinds of uh, other webinars that Farmstart has produced, as well as other real kick-ass resources for, for new and aspiring farmers. Thanks a lot to Margaret Graves at Farmstart who produced those webinars for Farmstart. And yeah, go check out Farmstart. How many times can I say Farmstart? I don't know. Anyway, it's a good organization. Go check it out, farmstart.ca. So every once in a while, I'm joined by the co-editor of the Canadian Organic Grower magazine, Amy Kremen, when she wants to tell us about all the great content in a new issue. The summer issue uh, just hit stands recently. I'm pretty sure it's available now online and at select bookstores and other magazine stands in Canada. And Amy joined me recently to tell me what we can expect from, from the newest issue. Here we go. Amy Kremen, thanks a lot for joining me again. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Why don't you tell me two or three pieces that we might talk about in this conversation? Okay. We have a three-part piece on comb cuts. So comb cuts is huge. It's a it's a, a, a big interest, especially in grain growing regions. But, you know, for anybody growing grains anywhere in Canada, it's a Swedish 
machine that's been designed to basically cut down weeds in the crop. Um, and so it's pretty new. It's been around for like nine years and Canada had its first machine just last year, but now this year there's probably about 10 machines operating in Canada. And what's really cool about it is basically you can go in once a crop is already up and you can, um, cut down branched weeds in anything that's like a grass type, or if your weeds are growing up above your crop, you can raise butters to cut off the seed heads that are growing above your crop. And then they just drop down and decompose inside the rows. So it's this kind of new, innovative, you know, organic, you know, compatible uh, weed management system that, you know, would allow you to reduce the amount of cultivations you need to do. So we have a three-part piece. One is from the company. Well, it's from somebody who works with the company in Sweden and interviewing the original farmer who came up with the idea for the machine, plus two uh, pieces from Canadian farmers who... Um, are using who have who who have and are using the comb cut currently, and so, sort of what they've what they've noticed about using it and their suggestions and why they're excited about it. Are they excited? I mean, is there is there initial kind of reaction or response that it's that it's going to be a, a good tool? Is, one of them is so excited that he and his wife have formed a company to become a distributor for the machine because they think it's going to be awesome. And the other one, the other farmer who's using it said, you know, he's tried a lot of different things and, you know, obviously this is an investment, he said, but basically, you know, if this machine prevents you from having to plow down even one crop, you know, in five years or two crops in five years that you would have lost because of, you know, not having control of your weeds, you'll basically over the cost of the lifetime of this machine, you know, as it depreciates, you're going to more than get the value of the machine back. Is this a machine off the front of the tractor or the or the rear? It must be oh, off the rear. You can use it. You can use it either way. Oh, really? You, you can use it either way. And then one of the farmers, you know, he's combining it. So like he's going to be running like I think he's running it off the front, but then he's putting like humic acid off the back. You know, his sprayer off the back. So you basically in one operation you can combine, you know, different. You know, you can do lots of different. You can do more than one thing when you're out there with your tractor. So weed management and fertility management at the same time. Um, pretty cool so if you imagine if you have you know if you've got anywhere upwards of 500 acres somewhere from 500 to 5,000 acres right and you know I don't I don't know off the top of my head grain prices but I know that for some of these grains for some you know for some for some organic grains right now with the, the prices of the commanding if you don't have to if you're not going to plow down that crop because you were able to have great weed pressure uh weed sorry weed management um, yeah, no, it's going to pay for that machine will pay for itself. It's just, it's one tool of many, but it's a new tool. So that's why it's, it's, it looks like, you know, it's effective and exciting because it gives you even more, gives you more flexibility, more control, more options, and you can cultivate less. Yeah. And it, I mean, it just seems like a, a tool that, you know, will be really exciting and useful for current organic grain farmers, but from my limited anecdotal experience, there's there's a good percentage of conventional farmers whose sole uh, barrier in their heads for for not converting to organic is is the is weed control, and it just seems like this is the kind of tool that that could that could ultimately, if it works as it is advertised, could convert a lot of people who are perhaps on the verge of converting you, to organic. Yeah, acres. absolutely. And I know that's something we're thinking about a lot in our coverage right now. Is when we write stuff for the Canadian Organic Grower, we put stuff in the Canadian Organic Grower. The idea is to put pieces out there um, that aren't preaching to the choir, but that are talking about, look, these are practices that are, are going to be, uh, that are up to date, of total interest to the currently for 
organic farming community, but that are also accessible ideas that would be useful for um, conventional folks who are organic curious or who are trying to reduce their inputs. And so um, that gets, just seems like a it seems like a win-win for everybody to kind of put that kind of material out there. Finally, able to satisfy some of this organic curiosity, hey? <laughs> right. Uh, so that's 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 a new machine called the Comb Cut <clears throat> out of Sweden that you've got covered in three different pieces in the magazine. Uh, what else What else is in this uh, summer issue that is just hitting newsstands? Okay, so we've also got um, we've also got a number. Uh, it's kind of a grains heavy issue, actually. So we've got um, some agronomic. We've got agronomic considerations for growing organic hemp, um, and we have a really uh, nice piece from Ian Cushion uh, as a profile of Moose Creek Organic Farm, um, sort of a, a kind of a traditional farm uh, profile of, of Moose Creek Organic Farm, where Ian is a highly diversified, pretty large, pretty large-scale organic grain grower, um, and alfalfa as well. Um, he, and he grows many kinds of grains and always has every year. He's got at least seven or eight different things going and sort of off the top of his head he can kind of run by sort of like what are the sort of main production constraints and considerations a farmer might want to have when they're thinking about getting in two different kinds of diversified cropping systems and the advantages thereof great so anything else you want to you want to talk about from the issue uh well i can talk about the cover issue uh, the cover story which um uh, oh, so I guess I could say in, in passing, we have a, a kind of a section. We've got a book review and an article and another article that all kind of look at energy use and carbon farming. So we're sort of stepping back and looking at sort of big sort of cli- climate and carbon kind of questions, but bringing it down to earth and uh, personalizing it. We've got uh, our cover story, which is a really beautiful and inspiring piece that's focused on the farm of Centre-Paul-Roulant based in Montreal. And it is a piece that talks about this nonprofit organization's effort to, you know, been for years, um, uh, delivering meals to people who are shut-ins by bike. And they've been trying to get that food as locally as possible. But a few years ago, they started their own farm. And it's been a runaway success. So they now have a CSA. They offer um, limited income shares which are um, subsidized in part by full-income-paying shareholders in the CSA. Their farm is putting out tons of produce. They have many hundreds of interns or volunteers, rather, come through their farm every summer. And so this piece is kind of um, a perspective piece on how do you make the connections between the urban and rural communities? How do you train hundreds of young people who are interested in functioning sustainable food systems how do you reach the people who are low income to get the best quality food to their houses into their into their lives into their lifestyles um and how could this be scaled or or transferred to other canadian cities and so you look at the land dynamic who's contributed the land for this project what do they get out of it and it's this beautiful sort of very integrated community piece showing you know a vibrant healthy exciting food system in, in action so we're really excited to have that piece included in this issue sounds like uh this farm is is kind of doing what uh what jean chrétien might describe as uh an organic farming community for the rest of us you got it uh that's that's a canadian healthcare debate reference amy i don't know if you if you picked up on that <laughs> 
Okay, Amy Kremen, where can people pick up a copy of the magazine or get access to these articles? Uh, you can go to the COG website where you can subscribe. You can also go to the TCOG website, which is at magazine.cog.ca, and just follow the follow the links to how to support, and you can get to a subscribe link there. You can also start to look around, and if you see the TCOG magazine, we're now a part of Magazines Canada, and we have been, the Magazines Canada is placing us in different stores all over Canada. <laughs> Amy Carmen, thanks a lot for joining me to talk about the latest uh, issue of TCOG. Absolutely. My pleasure, Jordan. All right, so that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, folks, and hopefully I'll be talking to you in a week's time. I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. Until then, and I guess, well, I don't know. Eat your vegetables. Trying to give me the screw But if we bury ourselves in the woods in the country Wear no clothes so we never have laundry We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves Live life like it was meant to be Ah, don't fret, honey, I've got a plan To make our final escape all we'll need is each other a hundred dollars and maybe a roll of duct tape and we'll run right outside of the city's reaches we'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches we'll owe nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and braces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be.